I grew up with my father having strict standards and my mom having strict standards and my coaches along the way having strict standards. So for me, it was just like, okay, another, this <laughs> another is a day walking apart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, many people be able to say that. Yeah. With Madonna. Yeah. So, That's you know, amazing. it's like, I, I think I was well prepared for what I have done and what I am doing currently and what I will be doing in the future. A black belt in karate by 12 nationally certified accomplished celebrity trainer in his 20s and a holistic fitness expert in exercise science biomechanics and nutrition by 30 just some of the accomplishments of this week's guest joshua j holland josh has developed personalized techniques and programs to transform the bodies of a host of celebrities including madonna oscar isaac Gigi hadid and roger waters and is responsible for the health and wellness of many notable people in the worlds of business fashion and entertainment He's currently co-founder of System Fit and 432 House in the heart of Midtown Manhattan and is constantly expanding and growing his wonderful team of like-minded trainers and health coaches. In part one of this two-part series, we cover Josh's early development, his father and mother's instrumental impact in developing his standards of excellence, his innate curiosity and how serendipity led him to become the trainer of people like Madonna and Roger Waters of Pink Floyd and establishing himself as one of the most sought-after celebrity trainers and fitness experts. I hope you enjoy this episode of Exercise Excellence, an entrepreneurial endeavor with Joshua J. Holland. Thank you for being on the Impossible Network podcast, Josh. Great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's it's quite awesome. You know, I'm, I'm actually happy to be here and I'm happy to like dive in with you, man. Let's dive right in now. Josh, you've recently opened your fitness studio on, on 6th Avenue, 432 House, right? You've been also on world tours recently with Roger Waters. I saw the Roger Waters concert here in the States. Amazing. Saw you when you kindly met up with us during that, yeah. that, that gig. Yeah. And you've been on tour in the past with Madonna. But before we talk about specifically what you're doing now and how you ended up doing these amazing tours with these great rock stars, I'd like to go back to your childhood, your time growing up in Oklahoma, how your parental support and influence guided you and helped you on your journey. I loved going back, right? Because it's very much like going back in the world of fitness and health. You know, I, I like to go back to show people that when we're born, when we're kids, we we play and we, you know, we have great movement patterns and then we unlearn all those things. So before I digress, yeah. <laughs> my childhood, I grew up in, in Chandler, Oklahoma. Small town. Which is, which is yeah, it's a, it's about a population 3,000 to 3,500 people. Mm. And growing up, up in Oklahoma was great for me because I wasn't distracted by the big city buzz all the time. It was, you know, it's a very small town where everyone knew each other. Safe place. Yeah, I guess you could call it safe, right? Like we didn't have to really worry about locking our doors, even our car doors, right? Like, so like I we would go to the restaurant or to the grocery store and you could leave your car unlocked and you'd never, I mean, I don't think we even had a key to our house now that I think about it. I mean, I, I never had one, you know? And uh, as things change throughout life. And of course, that kind of changes as well. But to answer your question, I think growing up with my mother and father, they instilled in me a lot of discipline right off the bat. I grew up in a very religious household. My mom and dad were always involved in the church. My mom was a great musician and was in the choir and would, you know, lead solos and played the piano and just amazing. And my dad was always, you know, on the deacon board or, you know, something to do with being a what's, pastor. What's the deacon board? Well, basically the group of men who are assisting the pastor oh, into I see delivering yeah, we just, you know, messages. Just coming from 
Scotland, we've got a different term for it. Yeah. So, um, so you know, from a, a very young age, my brother and I, and, and I always say we because just one brother. Yeah, just yeah. just my my older brother. I do have an older half brother, but he wasn't around. He was a, it was a little bit older than my brother and I. So it was just my brother and I growing up for the most part. Yeah, and. So I, I will say we a lot when it comes to my childhood, yeah. because I consider us as one. Uh, we're so close in age anyway. So, well, we, we saw that we weren't like a lot of the other kids. And this is, has nothing against how other kids were being raised or anything like that. But, you know, it was like we saw kids cutting up mm. a lot and, and not really respecting their Cuts elders. Yeah, cutting up is like, you know, getting in trouble a lot. Uh, mm. I, I don't just doing yeah. things they shouldn't be doing. Yeah. But, but you got the discipline of your... Sort of a, a church-centric household, right? And and then if you weren't good in in, in our household, then you paid the consequence, right? Mm-hmm. So you got spanked. We we got spanked. You know what I mean? And this is back when. Tell me about it. Yeah, yeah it was, I can <laughs> tell you a few stories. Maybe I was cutting up too much. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so you know, nowadays you have to you run the risk of uh, getting in legal trouble if you you know spank your children exactly, and things like yeah. that. But back then, I think it was a much different way of raising children and it for my brother and I it what's, worked what's the term I used to hear my mum say spare the rod and spoil the child yeah <laughs> yeah I got to know the rod quite well <laughs> I did too yeah. anyway so the, go back to your um, the upbringing your, your mother was a teacher your father was what he was in the church board my mom she was just uh, she was usually a part of the choir so she was a part of like the the music aspect of the church. And my dad was usually like, you know, on the deacon board mm-hmm. or whatever. And then my mom and dad divorced. What was your dad's career? He was the chief of police in our hometown, actually. Mm-hmm. So he was in law, enfor- law enforcement. And since it's such a small town. He wasn't very busy. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> actually, he was because you don't just do one job. You're the chief of police. You are on the EMT squad. You also do the weather, the dangerous weather forecasting of course, job. Oklahoma would be Everything. Hur- hur- not hurricanes, but uh, tornadoes. tornadoes yeah. yeah, Tornado uh, Alley. Yeah. So, I mean, it was it was very different. And then my mom and dad divorced when I was when my brother and I were like seven, around seven and eight. Mm. So how did that affect you in terms of the neuroplasticity of child development? You're still at a very influential stage at that age. Absolutely. You're not fully developed. That's a great question. And, and, you know, I feel like as young kids, my brother and I didn't really understand the impact, the why. And it's it's really difficult to tell a child it's not your fault when mom and dad are together anymore. But then at some point you kind of understand that like, wow, OK, maybe like when I first got in a relationship and it just didn't work out. Mm-hmm. I look back and I think, oh, that's what my mom and dad meant. <laughs> it just didn't work out. I mean, they don't hate each other, but it just didn't work out, right? But again, it's hard to explain that to a young child because you you want your mom and dad to be together. Yeah. Unless, I mean, because when we saw them together, we they were okay. They were fine, you know. You just didn't see behind closed doors. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So who did you end up um, going to live with? Initially, it was my mom. She left for a period of time when my mom and dad separated. And then she came back and got my brother and I and took us away. And that was the most heartbreaking time of my childhood that I can remember. Simply because, you know, my life, my whole livelihood at that point up until about six or seven years old was Chandler, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. So all my friends were there. All my accomplishments were made through there. And I remember specifically my brother and I being ranked 
number one and number two in the state in martial arts for several years. And I was currently ranked number one and I was, I was about to be going to another state championship and really skyrocket my <laughs> my young career. <laughs> and my mom came back and took my brother and I. So wait a to, minute, she took you where? To, well, she, well, we ended up going to, I think it was uh, Stillwater at the time. But it's the same state. Yeah, same state. Oh. Yeah. But but just took us away. Just took so, us out of that. Yeah. So it took you away from your sort of safe, safe space, created uncertainty. Yeah. It was change. We'll come back to that. I was going to ask you about the most defining moment or memory from your childhood, but I, I suspect from what you just said, it was the the breakup of your parents and that moving away from your, your the, the small community and creating that Certain, disruption. Certainly can be, yeah. Definitely one of them. Okay. That sense of self-belief that you've, you've got, you mentioned you were doing martial arts and I've heard on previous interviews, you started training to be in martial arts and karate at age four. Yeah. Yeah. Which is amazing. What were the key influences in, in giving you that sense of self-belief that you obviously developed at a young age, but have now sort of taken into entrepreneurship and innovation in your own space? When it comes to martial arts and starting at a very young age, I quickly discovered the difference between knowledge because of experience mm -hmm. or knowledge just because of studying or seeing. And that was a point at which, like in order to become a black belt in, in my dad's karate system, you have to have a certain amount of teaching hours, which means- Or you your know, dad was a karate teacher as well, so yeah, chief of police? Yeah, well, oh, so he's chief oh. of police running, yeah, I mean, multitude of things. Oh, wow. Okay. So as I became more advanced in the system, a lot of people started to just give this respect to my brother and I, and obviously our dad is the sensei, right? Our dad is the, owns the dojo. But when you start to see grown men bow in respect to this young forming mind, and you understand that that respect comes because you're number one in the state, because you're a brown belt, about to be a black belt, because we had it harder than any other student at that school. Because yeah, with your father, right, being the sensei, right. I mean, it's but, a lot of these kids got a chance to see, like, if we made one mistake, we didn't pass. Mm -hmm. If they made twelve mistakes, they they probably passed. But it's also when you we said at age twelve, black belt, because it's not just getting your belt; you have to be. Uh, have capability and understanding in other aspects around the sport? It's it's a, a very physical and spiritual system. And that's why I like martial arts, because it does teach you respect and discipline and um, teaches you more than just the physical. It teaches you about chi and energy mm -hmm. and fortitude and resilience. And so, but it, in my dad's system, he wanted everyone who becomes a black belt to also know first aid. Uh -huh. and anatomy because he was an EMT. So he was able to blend his influence and experience in life into his karate system as well. Interesting. Do you think at that age you had any sense that your future life would be so focused and centered around physical exercise, nutrition and balance? <laughs> I will be honest with you and say that at that age, I don't recall thinking far into my life, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's just being honest because then I was just present in the moment of all the things. Of course, I would watch movies like in documentaries about Bruce Lee and see some of these guys being older, wise, mm -hmm. masters and things like that. But I never saw myself as 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 being that, which is really interesting. interesting yeah. But looking back, it's like, well, of course I'm going to be, you know, there has to be some sort of correlation to yeah, of always being surrounded by the physical and, and, and knowing the body. And now it comes back full circle to where that's my career. Mm -hmm. I guess it does make sense. So 
arguably the epigenetics of consuming so much influential media around martial arts mm -hmm. as well as your father's influence as well as the respect that you were being shown from an older generation mm -hmm. must have definitely affected your sense of self. Either you could look at it as me creating the environment or that environment was created for me mm -hmm. or a blend of the two because you know even after martial arts it's always still a part of me right I still like even today you know nowadays I, I whenever I can I still practice jujitsu which is another art form Brazilian yeah, yeah, but it's uh, I really love it because it's another level of martial arts that that just shows that there is a skill, but it deserves respect of the skill. Yes. And 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 so that's what I love about martial arts. It's like two people could be as strong as each other or one could be way overpowering to the other person. but That other person can still win. And that's what makes it really, really cool. And, and I kind of apply that to life as well. If you have experience, it doesn't matter how much money you make or how much money you have. I and mean, obviously we know situations where that you know, maybe that does give you an upper hand, but experience kind of trumps everything in my, in my eyes. You know, when people ask me about, Hey, what's the best way to, to lose weight or whatever. I like to always talk about experiences because yeah. we can always show if you want to find data, you can find data to support whatever theory you have. Right. But like experience, if I'm talking to you and you're asking me the best way to get faster, I need to talk about your experiences. Right. Because if I just use a blanket response, for every person, then we don't know if it's going to work for you or not. Yeah, I could have done with you about 25 years ago. <laughs> Talking about being faster. Martin Luther King uh, said that faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the staircase. Where does your faith in your own vision come from? I have to attribute that to my childhood mm -hmm. and all of my childhood experiences because my parents, they were the kind of parents that told me I can achieve whatever I want, but if you're willing to work for it. Mm -hmm. So there was that caveat always. It's got to be the work. Right. And so I was praised more for my effort than I was for my quote unquote God given talent. And that is huge. And that was a huge. deliberate decision mm -hmm. by your parents to. I would assume so. Yeah. I would assume so. Because every child can be cute and can be, oh, he's so smart for his for his age. And, but then if you just hear that all the time, then at what point do you do you realize that like you can improve it or maybe it's just always supposed to be given to you? I mean, I think it's a, it's a great characteristic to have as a parent. How did your father particularly balance that with giving you praise, acknowledgement when you did achieve something? Or did he even withhold that to give you a sense of you're, you're never quite good enough? How, what was the, can you just dive into that a little bit? That's a really good question. Let's put it this way. He was never one to overpraise. So it was almost like, I can tell you this, he was, my dad was there for every event possible. And that's one thing I can say because even after the divorce. Yeah, because after the divorce, we my brother and I went with my mom for about a year and a half, kind of moving around. And then our grandmother, her mom, ended up coming down with cancer, breast cancer and got really sick. And so my mom had to take care of her so that our brother and I and, and it was only about 30 minutes away from our, our small hometown. But she was taking care of her mom. And it was a little bit too difficult to be taking care of two young boys at the same time when our hometown is only 30 minutes away. Mm -hmm. So we got a chance to go back with our dad and he raised us. Uh, what age was that? That was that was around, I think that was around eight 
or nine, maybe around nine years old, because we left for about a year and a half. So yeah, I think it was around nine. Mm -hmm. Knowing that he was there was always kind of like, I mean, and of course, like I don't know, it, it's really hard to explain. I just, I know that there's some parents who are just like, oh my gosh, yes, and giving them hugs, and you're the mm -hmm. best, and that's fine. But my, with my dad, it felt like it was always like, okay, let's get the next one. Come mm -hmm. on, let's get yeah. the next one. Come on, let's get the next one. And I mean, he was definitely happy for my brother and I, of course, but especially in martial arts, he knew that we were going to be the best because we we worked our butts off all the time for it. So it was almost like, well, of course you're the best in the state. And of course you're going to be the number one in the country because you are doing the work, right? Versus, oh my gosh, it's so lucky that you won. No, it was expected. <laughs> I'm getting a really good sense of an appreciation of your parents' code of ethics that clearly have affected you and de defined the Josh Holland that is sitting in front of me right now. Yeah. What I haven't got a sense of yet is where something that I'm, I'm intrigued is if it's something more innate rather than that was encouraged by your parents, is your sense of curiosity that I've sensed since I've met you a few years ago, but also what I've heard you describe in other interviews, that you were called Curious Josh. Yeah. And that you went out and you discovered, you learned about things, you, it affected your entrepreneurial spirit. Talk to me a bit about where that curiosity characteristic comes from. I definitely think that it was innate, but I think it was also pulled out of me because it was encouraged. So I think it's, you know, to fully answer your question, your I think- mother your father both 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 parents and 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 it was also it's kind of like all of it together both combined mm -hmm. is kind of what got me to where I am right now and I think also something that's super important is when growing up in a small town it was okay to like not be seen for hours upon hours upon hours but when the lights on the street lights come on we were to be home mm -hmm. and it was this like my parents didn't have to worry right because if something were to happen to my brother and I then somebody's parents would be calling right mm -hmm. if something happened yeah. they would call and the parents would be at home and so now that left me and all the other kids to kind of add to our own devices to to discover whatever we wanted to discover. This kind of plant and, oh, that's poison ivy down there. So yeah, we shouldn't go there because so-and-so got poison ivy or, I don't know, don't go in this person's backyard because the dog gets loose. Now your, your whole world is opened up to a multitude of things instead of just staying at home on playing video games or getting all your research through social media. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was like real-time research. So I was just very curious about everything. Everything. I wanted to know why everything worked and how everything worked. A couple of comments there. We, a couple of the recent interviews we've done. Ryder Carroll, um, who's an ADD sufferer, but cured his own ADD by developing a journaling method. Mm -hmm. And there's a fine line between rampant curiosity and ADD and keeping it in check so that you have enough curiosity to learn and develop and not get distracted by just some other rabbit hole you can go down. Mm. Yeah, I was... Uh, School became very easy for me. I, I have to say that, like, you know, I, I didn't get a perfect 4.0, but I was right on the cusp. I mm -hmm. think I ended up getting a B, like, um, my junior year or my senior year in one class that was it was just a crazy mistake and that's what kept me from being valedictorian or salutatorian wow. 
but other than that, I mean, it was like it was kind of a cakewalk for me because I was able to learn quite easily and I was always curious. So I wanted to learn everything that I was learning. Right. And then I would just apply it. And then looking back on it, I realized just how lazy I was, like looking back <laughs> on it now because it was easy. Right. And so. But the one thing that made school somewhat easy for me is because my dad made it. It was important that we had perfect attendance, perfect attendance. It was what I got from K to 12, even throughout all the, um, you know, like traveling with my mom for that year and a half. Every school that we were into perfect attendance every single day. So from K to 12, from kindergarten all the way to my senior year. Illness or no illness. Had perfect attendance. Mm. And that's what's important. Well, it was important for me. So, of course, school is going to be easy because I'm going to be there for every subject. I'm going to be there for everything. And I had to, I mean, I had like full access to my teachers. And I knew because of my upbringing in martial arts and my in the way that my my family raised me that it's, hey, you talk to your elders if you have a question. So mm -hmm. why? Why not ask? I mean, if I don't know something, ask. Yeah. The other point I was going to make was about Dr. Merritt Moore, who's this <laughs> incredible person we interviewed in Boston, who's a, a ballet world class ballet dancer and quantum physicist. Oh, wow. And she's trained to be an astronaut as well. Wow. Uh, at the age 30. My goodness. Yeah, I know. She's something else. But it's interesting because she was saying that her father, he was an entertainment lawyer in Hollywood, and he brought her up living next door to Paris Hilton, wouldn't allow them to consume any media. Everything was playing in the garden. It wow. was about reading books. It was about math problems and developing her curiosity and physical uh, appreciation of physicality as well. So yeah. it's interesting. There's some parallels there, definitely. There's a good book like based on the last couple of questions you just you just asked there's a, a great book that i just read that kind of hones in on the idea of curiosity being one of the codes mm. of those who are known as geniuses right i would never you know label myself as a genius by any means but i definitely have a lot of elements of these codes and curiosity is something that i've always had mm -hmm. and i will always what's your have. what's the book it's called uh, Awakening Your Inner Genius by yeah. Sean Patrick. I think, yeah, I've heard that mentioned before. Yeah. Amazing book. Okay, that's on the list then. We're amazing. going to come back and talk about books at the end. Okay. You talked, um, I've heard you talk about your entrepreneurial uh, characteristics at an early age as well. You're not just curious, not not just um, getting your black belt, acing things at school, but you're also selling and making stuff when you're a child. So <laughs> yeah. that entrepreneurial spirit started, started young. Yeah. But I'd like to understand, actually, you know what? Um, I'm going to bring in a, a writer, Carol, again, because in his book, uh, The Bullet Journal, he mentions a Japanese word called ikagi, um, it, which is the intersection of what you're good at and what you love. You seem to be a person that, that perfectly describes ikagi because you're in fitness and nutrition, you're black belt, martial artist, but also a great basketball player. Can we just do a quick run through from that time when you, you we got to around age 12, getting your black belt to get to where you are today? Because I know that you you went to university and you studied physiotherapy, uh, no, physical, physical therapy, physical and therapy psychology. and psychology. Mm -hmm. And then you went into communications. And I've even read that you ended up in advertising. But now you've got your own studio on Sixth Avenue. So can you just walk us through the journey of how you got there? Yeah, I'll try to do it as simply as possible. Yeah. So getting my black belt at age 12 was a huge milestone. So something I will never forget. But it also showed me 
that if you work hard for something and you work smart for it and you truly know what you're doing, and if you don't know what you're doing, you're constantly trying to find out how to improve, then you can get whatever you want. And I was shown that at age 12. Mm -hmm. Like it was actually before my 12th birthday that I became a black belt, which is amazing, right? And then I went on to play basketball and that was kind of getting my black belt opened up my whole world because my dad finally let my brother and I, after we got our black belts, he let us play around with other sports and things like that, right? Because now we get a chance to live our own lives the way we want to. Well, we still have to do martial arts, of course, but yeah. <laughs> um, so then I was like, okay, well, in, in basketball, it's each game I get a chance to, to, to achieve goals or to set goals and achieve goals, right? So then, you know, maybe in one game, like I had a goal of certain amount of points, certain amount of assists, certain amount of rebounds. If I don't get it, work hard on it. How do I work hard on it? I practice. Well, if practicing doesn't help, then I review game tape. As a young boy, I was reviewing game tapes of what I look like when I shoot. A lot of people don't even understand this, but Where we- Where getting the game tapes from? So like my dad would record, you know, he had a camera. Or he would either record or someone would record like from the school and we'd ask for a copy. But a lot of the games that I was playing early on was called CYO, which was like uh, it's like Chandler Youth Organization. So it was outside of school. So, yeah, like many people would just have like their own cameras and it would record. But I would even have my dad like record me like in the backyard because I think it's very important. You know, there's that conscious, unconscious feedback loop. So when you don't know what you look like when you're performing something something and you and you think you're 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 doing it in a different way then that's kind of an a, a unconscious incompetence right mm, yeah and so the only way to really change that is to to have a conscious incompetence yes and then you move on to conscious right? competence yeah and then you move yeah. on to an mm. unconscious competence yeah. Yeah. right yeah. there's a quadrant here so the best name for that we have to put that in the show notes i'd forgotten about that one yeah the yeah yeah, i think it's i always call it the conscious unconscious feedback loop yeah but um there is there is a word for it but the best way for me to figure that out and find that out and i found this out at a young age was to review footage and it started because of martial arts so we would always watch every uh karate match we would always look back at it whether i won or lost right because it was important yeah finessing the particular moves and the balance yeah. and, the, and, yeah. the, and the, the timing of everything. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's interesting. Your father sounds like he did a PhD in fatherhood. <laughs> I mean, yeah. He yeah. seems to have a lot to do with um, your success. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and so then it went from karate, black belt, basketball, mm-hmm. then making the, the school team, then not only just making the school team, but starting on the school team, then getting the average that I wanted, then being trying to be the best player I can be, then making the high school team, but playing on the high school team or the junior varsity team as a freshman, which was not happening normally in my hometown. Then as a sophomore, playing on the varsity team and starting a few games here and there, and then helping to win a nat- or a state championship to then just going on from there and then going to to play basketball in college and having my basketball and academics help pay for my entire college. These are all goals that I was achieving along the way. Were you setting goals at this time? Were you yeah. writing them down? Yeah. yeah. So you always had a very strong goal setting regime. I think a lot of the reason why I wrote some things down, because I was never really a huge writer. I didn't really like to write, to be honest with you. And I didn't even like to read, which I see. 
see now. It's changed now, hasn't it? Right, it's completely <laughs> changed now. And so I think I missed out on a lot of things that I could have picked up on, but I was more fascinated by documentaries and movies, and I still am today. But I did write things down because in school we were asked to do certain things, certain projects, and then some of the interviews that I read or I saw, I saw people writing things down. So every once in a while I would write some things mm-hmm. down, you know? But yeah, I definitely set goals. Like I knew because my brother and I, we grew up relatively poor. I knew that we didn't have, the family didn't have the money to pay for college or to go to university. So one of my goals, I said, and I told my dad this, like, I will do whatever it takes to make sure that you don't have to pay a dime for me to go to college. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, I made money going to school because of the the double scholarships, you know? And then I also got work study. I was in the work study program and things like that with financial aid. So I was able to actually make money going to school, which is amazing. Okay. So we went to school where... Um, so I, I first went to Rose State College in Midwest City, Oklahoma, and I went there because my one of my primary objectives to going to college was to play basketball, because at that point I was convinced that I was going to play pro basketball. You're not the biggest chap. No, not at all. I mean, and what, you're 5'11", left five, six foot, maybe? Six foot, yeah. yeah. yeah you... Six foot. Um, and, you know, so it's like when I was in school, it was 5'11"-ish, six foot, I would put on, on the program. With shoes on, definitely six foot, obviously, yeah. right? Power, power to weight ratio, you were probably doing quite well. I guess to be frank, I had to really, I quickly realized that I was, I was good for my region and for my small school and things like that. But when I got to college, like everybody was good in their, in their region and their small schools Mm -hmm. and whatever. And so I was playing basketball at a different level, but, but it was a goal of mine to play pro ball. When I got to college, the, the, to the junior college, I realized, whoa, I'm not as good as I think I am, which goes back to that whole thing. Like, yeah, like I, I was named, I got all these awards for basketball and did all these things. And everybody was telling me, oh man, you're so good. You're so good. You're so good. But that didn't work when I got to college. It was, I had to prove myself. Okay. There's a quote. It's not the circumstances that define you. It's your response. You encountered a setback at that point in your life of realizing probably for the first time in your life, I'm not the best of the best. There's probably many other times before then, but that was definitely one of the big ones. That didn't knock you back though. You went, you took it to the next level. Where did you go from there? Man, that drove me like crazy. It drove me. It put a fire because I was literally at the bottom of the depth chart, mm-hmm. which the depth chart on, on any team, but especially in basketball, is basically it's a ranking of the team to kind of see like, okay, we, we, we're we investing in this player and these players, so they should be at the top of the depth chart because they're the most experienced or mm-hmm. the best player or whatever. I came in highly recruited. And they put all the resources in me and a few other players. But then the first couple of weeks of ball, when we, you know, when rubber meets the road, I was like, I could barely get the ball past half court. So when I saw my name at the bottom of of the depth chart, it drove me to get back up to the top because I started out kind of like the top three. And then next thing you know, we come in one day and I see my name at the bottom and I was like, I mean, I, I shouldn't have been shocked because I was playing poorly, right? But what it did is it drove me. So then I went back up to the top. We got runner up in the national tournament. Next year went on to start most of the games, then went on to 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 get a scholarship at a university after that, which is Northwestern Oklahoma State University. Mm-hmm. Went on to play very well there. Had another setback, broke my wrist, thought my basketball career was over. Ended up coming back from that, became probably an even better player. It caused me to become sort of like a late bloomer though. After I graduated college was when I actually discovered like wow, I I can play with some 
with these guys who've been playing ball professionally overseas. And that's when I was like, wait a minute, my career may not be over. But then I realized there's something to this. There's there's a, there's a such thing as a late bloomer. That's fine. But then there's also the freedom to just kind of let me do what I want to do. When I was playing without the, the strict guidelines of the coach saying, you got to pass the ball now. You got to shoot every time. It's like, man, it's not, it takes the fun out of playing ball. So when I graduated and I wasn't playing ball for a struck for, you know, a university or, or whatever, it was like, wow, my true talent came out. Now I can really ball. <laughs> so then that cut carried me over to eventually moving to New York. And, and then I got an opportunity to finally play overseas. So that was why you came to New York? It was- no, no, I actually came to New York to do modeling and acting. But again, that was when I thought my career was over. So you I already- didn't really believe that basketball was going to be your no. full-time career. No, it was it, because I was playing so carefree. Because I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't really care anymore mm-hmm. at that point. I thought like, ah, I'm not going to play ball. I'm only playing ball to like stay in shape yeah. because I was doing modeling and acting, right? But then that's when I've, I noticed that I was crushing my opponents. And these are people who were currently who, playing. Who, who were you playing for in New York? Um, so I was just playing in a men's, a few men's leagues. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of men's leagues here. At the time I was playing, it was, it was called Reebok Sports Club then. Now it's Equinox Sports Club oh, yeah. on the uh, Upper West Side. And... And then I also played in a league at Dykeman Park in in uh, just north of the of uh, I guess it would be the Bronx, yeah. right? And then um, there was a few other like leagues that I would play in. Like I forget what the other ones called, but there's a lot of leagues that that go on here. And you start to kind of talk to some of the right people, and they're like, "Dude, like, where did you play ball? Uh, Northwestern Oklahoma State University? What? You didn't play D one? Nah. <laughs> well, dude, like, what are you doing now? Just modeling, and acting, <laughs> and training, personal training." man you got to talk to so-and-so you need to play for this you need to try this and that's what kind of sparked this whole idea to then probably try to do some some more ball ball uh-huh. again and i did i'd love to go down this sort of the modeling <laughs> and acting route but we'll, we'll i don't think we've got time for that <laughs> but you came to new york obviously because you, you wanted out of the small town the yeah. the oklahoma state some mentality mm-hmm. what better place to come to do modeling and acting other than maybe la is new york so that makes sense but you didn't touch on just first of all you went into that communication sort of shift at university mm, and yeah. and then why did you do that and how did you end up when you came here to do modeling and acting end up in advertising when i was at the junior college this was around the time i had I just graduated high school I had all these ideas of like, I'm going to double major. So I double majored in psychology and physical therapy. I was playing basketball for the, for the school. I was a tutor for our team and I had two jobs. I had a part-time job at General Nutrition Center and I was also selling cars, <laughs> right? So now it's way too much way too much for any human to to possibly handle. And I was doing it, but I realized quickly that something is going to suffer. And what I thought was, this is probably the reason why I wasn't dedicating enough time to staying higher up on the death chart. Mm -hmm. So I need to get rid of something. So I needed extra money. I wanted extra money. So I didn't change the job situation. So I said, okay, let me change my workload, my, my class workload. So then I switched to, I guess it would have been a gen ed. So like they call it liberal studies. So I did liberal studies, which I would have had to do anyway. Some of the prerequisites was what, what, which was what I was already working through. And then I think their program there was called mass communications or 
public relations, something like that. Yeah. So that was so that was what I did there at the junior college. And then when I went to the university after the junior college, they didn't have the same program that I got my my junior college. Well, I guess it would be the what is it before bachelor's degree? Associate's degree. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have the same carryover. So they lumped the university just lumped their programs, their bachelor program into mass communications. So I chose mass communications of course. And then I minored in physical education, which you kept that connection. going. Yeah. So I, cause I knew I would do something physical. Yeah. So when you came to New York, you were doing your, your playing ball, you were, you were doing some modeling. Um, how did you get into advertising? Was it just to make more money? So the advertising was, was what I did right after I graduated college. So I was oh, still right, in Oklahoma. Okay. Uh, okay. So yeah. it wasn't advertising in doing in New York. No. Okay. So it was advertising. So funny story. And we can dive into it more now or another time if you want. But upon graduating college, I moved back to Oklahoma City. I was, I mean, I wanted to make money. Um, and, and there was times when I was struggling, so I needed to make even more. So I still kept my GNC job, but that wasn't enough to do what I really wanted to do. So I I found this opportunity to, there was a, an ad in the paper and it was about advertising. And it said, you know, do you want to make $1,000 a week or something like that? And I was like, yeah, who doesn't, right? So I, I went to the interview, got the job, realized it was a, it's a multi-level, multi-level marketing scheme type of company, right? But I didn't care. Like I, I knew what it was. I got it. I saw it. But when I saw this guy who took me on an interview, he didn't just interview me. He took me out in the field with him. And I, I'm like, wait, what do you mean take me out into the field? Josh, you want to go out into the field with me? Yeah, yeah. He took me in his car and we literally went door to door, knocking on doors, selling selling these pamphlets. And that's what they called advertising. Now, I had a degree in mass communications. In, in yeah. communication <laughs> with an emphasis on advertising and, and marketing, things like that. But what they're selling me on is like, this, dude, this is door-to-door salesman. It's like, yeah, but we don't call it that. <laughs> I said, okay. But I quickly forgot about it being door-to-door when every time he came back to the car or I'm sitting, standing right beside him at this person's door and they're giving him money, boom, turned on the light bulb for me. I said, wait a minute. So I literally asked the guy, you're not supposed to do this, but I asked him, I said, hey, let me try it on my interview day. And he let me do it. And I got wow. five sales on my first day. Oh, amazing. Oh. And I was, so I'm like, okay. So now I have, I had, cause it, you get 50 bucks and then I got another 50 bucks. So I made a hundred dollars on a day that I'm supposed to be just going for an interview. I was like, I'm sold. Yeah. I'm sold. Right. So anyway, so that's what my advertising yeah. bit was. And then one of those days I was working and running my own business through that advertising agency. I knocked on the door of, of this guy who actually ran a legit advertising agency. He was the general manager of Trader Publications, which does like uh, Trader Magazine mm-hmm. and like Auto Trader, yeah. Boat Trader and all that stuff. So he was one of the general managers. I knocked on his door. He's the general manager of Trader Publications. And he's like, why is this dude in a suit on his hot summer day out in front of my house? So he asked me, hey, man, would you like to come in? No, I can't come in because you're not allowed to. You're not supposed to. He was like, look, you come in, you sit down. I'll, I'll buy what you have there. So I came in, sat down. He bought a few of my, my cards and he says, listen, I'll buy the rest of those if you come back tomorrow but you got to meet me at my office wow so i was like 
okay. In my head, I'm like, yeah, I just want to sell these cards and let's get get going, move on. But he pitched me and he pitched me the job of a lifetime at that time compared to what I was doing. He was like, hey, how about I take you out of the field? How about you, you, you know, drive and go to companies and you work with these people and not have to knock on people's doors? Not that it's bad. You're doing well for yourself, but I want to change all that for you. Give you insurance and have a legit job. I was like, Okay. <laughs> so that's that's what I did. And then I moved to New York shortly after that because I just wanted more opportunities. Okay. We're going to ask you about serendipity. Mm. But that sounds like a serendipitous experience. Yeah. Alan Saunders quote, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. You've made your decision to come to New York to become a model to do some acting. But what happy accidents, chance encounters or serendipitous moments or experiences led you from not doing modeling to doing what you're doing now? There's probably a chain of events that are the most serendipitous moments that led me from being on a modeling website, meeting a photographer who I ended up subletting from through a quote unquote friend who I didn't really know who was a male model who knew of him, who had worked with him, said, hey, you should meet this guy. This guy was like, look, I'm moving to London. You could sublet my place if you want. Ended up subletting it from there. I ended up meeting because uh, I went to some networking events with the guy that, who was also a model who was who introduced me to the photographer. And that's, that's what led me to meeting my manager, who you've met before, to... At the core club. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For anyone listening, the core club is... Um... Yeah, it's a, it's a private club that has a, a huge health component to yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So after meeting my manager, he suggested that I, if I really wanted to thrive and do well, you need to be in the right circle. So he says, you should probably join gyms. Don't spend your money or waste your money, quote unquote, on going to like, you know, the cheapest gym you can find, you should go to Reebok Sports Club. Mm-hmm. So I went to Reebok Sports Club, signed up for membership, even though it was way beyond my means. But that's what led me to get eventually getting a job to play basketball overseas, which also ended up introducing me to a lady who happened to be friends with the general manager of Tracy Anderson's future studio, who she said, hey, you you seem like a great guy. I've seen you in these health and fitness magazines. I don't even know if you're a trainer and I don't even know if you're a dancer, but you should at least go on this audition. So I went to the audition, ended up getting a job working for Tracy Anderson to then working with Tracy Anderson, meeting Madonna, to then working and training Madonna, to then going on tour, to then meeting all of her friends, to then you know running the gym at the Core Club in the Carlisle Hotel, to doing tours with Roger Waters. Give us um, <laughs> a sense of the uh, of yeah. the timeline here, because all that sounds like a, a really intense sort of cascade of events. What sort of timing did these things occur over a period from what two thousand and Seven two thousand eight. Yeah, yeah. It was. I think it was around two thousand seven. Mm-hmm. But you know, to be honest with you, it feels like all this has happened last week. Mm-hmm. But when I look back, yes, it was over a span of about ten years. Mm-hmm. Once I got to that level of like working with Tracy and being amongst all of those types of people, it just sped up tremendously. It was just like. 
it just everything started to happen really fast because you didn't I, I know you you studied um we'd call it in the UK PE physical education mm-hmm. but when did you actually sort of get your qualifications to be a physical trainer that would allow you to be hired in a place like the the core club so most fitness coaches at some point throughout their career have to get certifications I mean we don't have to but you should like you really really should so that started for me even before I moved to New York because when I was working at GNC everyone kept saying to me like Josh dude like will you train me like train me to look like you or you know you know so much about supplements why don't you train me so I got a certification like a very oh, so small that was, that was done then so you're all yeah. that was in the bag yeah and then I got more as as my career deepened once I got with Tracy Anderson and then I knew that I would be working with like big names I wanted to like really validate my own experience and knowledge I, I wanted to say to myself like no I really know what I'm doing. So that's when I decided to go out and get like the real big certifications and many of them. So when you were at the... Tracy Anderson, she she identified identified you at the core club, or was it no? So the core club happened way after Tracy, and happened even after my work with Madonna. In fact, while I was on my way out from from working with Madonna in her camp, was sort of the same time that I was finding out that like, hey, I might be, I might have an opportunity mm-hmm. to be at the core club, and lo and behold. My manager, uh, one of his friends at the time, he's the he's the link to the core club. So, again, it goes back to this serendipitous moment. Right. So this person knows this person. Hey, these people are looking for a a new situation within their their fitness studio. Um, I know you work closely with Josh. Would he be able to? I know he's traveling with Madonna, but like, does would he be interested Actually, he's not traveling with her anymore. Like now, he's available, and oh, okay. So that's but how. Tracy Anderson must have encountered plenty of people that were also coaches, were fitness, fitness trainers. What do you think made you stand out and made her sort of recognize something in you? I don't even think it's as much her as it was Madonna recognizing something mm-hmm. in me because you know. Oh, I don't want that to sound wrong. I mean, I'm very grateful for everything that that ever happened with with Tracy. But at the same time, I feel like she was just trying to find as much talent as she can and then cover all the many clients that she had. She had way too many clients for her for one person. Right. Mm -hmm. While she did recognize something in me, I think it was those that she put me with trusting her and then recognizing something in me as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's as important, if not more important. Um, what do you think when you first met Madonna? What do you think she was looking for in you? Someone who's willing to do the work. Someone who's who's not afraid to change on a on a moment's notice. Someone who is confident. Because she's known for her exacting standards and expectations of commitment. So obviously your yeah. father prepared you well for that. Yeah, I, and and it's true. I mean, she definitely requires the best, and so. I knew that and, you know, I I grew up with my father having strict standards and my mom having strict standards and my coaches along the way having strict standards. So for me, it was just like, okay, another, this <laughs> another is a walk in the Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> How many people be able to say that? Yeah. Working with Madonna. Yeah. So, That's you know, amazing. it's like, I, I think I was well prepared for what I have done and what I am doing currently and what I will be doing in the future. Okay. <clears throat> Going to crack on. Just very quickly, how did you, after the Madonna and the Core Club, what was the, encounter? how did you encounter Roger Waters? So Roger 
as luck would have it, is a member of the core club. <laughs> ah, right, again, so, right place, you know, right time. And it's not like he um, he's not there every day, clearly, right? Because he's traveling on tour and he's, you know, uh, overseas and he's just bouncing around the world doing what he does, right? And so, you know, he's an amazing person. But that's where we met at the core club. And at the time, one of our trainers that was working for us was grandfathered in. And he, his name is Mike Zeminski. Mike was already there and had like a whole list of, of high-end clients already through the core club. He just kind of rolled over into our payroll and just the way we manage things. And we just kind of let him do him, you know, like, hey, we can help you, whatever. But then a few years later, he got married, had a kid and wanted a little bit more consistency uh, in his in his work because when you're a trainer, you, you're you only getting paid for the time you spend with that one client that one yeah. time, unless you're one that maximizes digital and virtual, virtual training and things like that. But he wasn't there yet. So he wanted to like be able to support his family. So we helped him get a job with Technogym and Technogym is a big company. And we knew Mike would be a great salesman because he's very good trainer, very good with people. And he did a very good job and it still is. He's still working with them. So that level left all of his clients without a trainer and he was training Roger, Roger Waters, Waters and many other people. And so then that was an opportunity for, for Earl and I to kind of decide who gets who, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't, with a person like Roger and some of these people that he trained, that Mike trained, you don't just say, hey, you're going to be with this person now. Some of those clients you can do it with, but with people like Roger, it's like, you know, you need to you need to have them with a certain type of person. So you have to put him with someone who understands the the celebrity in him that mm-hmm. understands this way of training. And I fortunately was I had already had prior experience working with Madonna. So, you know, for me, it was just another it was another situation. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, um, that in itself must have been an amazing experience. Push for time now. I'm going to jump into our quick fire questions. Yeah. What principles do you stand by, Josh? There's many principles, but work ethic is is a huge principle for me. Value, if you will. Curiosity mm-hmm. definitely is one. Integrity. What hard choices have yet to make that might have been tough at the time that turned out to be the right decision in the end? Uh, when I was so obsessed with playing pro basketball and I had an opportunity to play in the, the D League, the Del- Developmental League, now known as the G League, but that opportunity would have sent me back to Oklahoma to play on a team in Tulsa or stay in New York and pursue this opportunity in personal training. And I decided, and that was a tough decision to make because mm-hmm. I was playing my best ball then, which is why I got noticed. So what could it have been? Mm-hmm. But look at me now. Yeah. Right. Okay. And I'm much happier now. So where do you go or what do you do to discover new ideas or where you need space to think outside? <laughs> I go in nature because nature holds the key to everything and uh, connecting, connecting and reconnecting to nature, I think, is one thing that is a huge part of my life and has been since I was a little boy. Thankfully, because of the way I was raised, but also martial arts, you know, it's just it, there, there's a lot to the Eastern philosophies of martial arts that really bring that into the forefront of my brain, especially as, as a young boy mm-hmm. and well into my career now, my age now. Okay. 
who are your main influences and or inspirations? Definitely have to say my mother and father. Of course, yeah. Um, and sometimes it may sound like I, I talk a lot more about my father, but that's a lot of times because of the childhood upbringing. But I then have to talk about my mom and her resilience and all the things that she's gone through in my adult years is when I start to talk about her more. She just w went through the most horrific car accident, which proved to be fatal to my aunt, her sister. And, you know, we're now closer than ever. And I think it's because of that. But then that's when you start to see that, wow, like she went through so much. And sometimes you forget these things unless they're pointed out. So, I mean, she's as, as powerful, if not the most powerful, you know, influence in my life today. And I'm still close with my father, but I'm as close, if not closer, to my mother now. Okay. So, yeah. Um, how do you keep up with technology? <laughs> oh, oh, man, we could talk a whole episode on that. Yeah. Um, well, let's I, just say you do keep up, don't you? <laughs> yeah. It's it's. Let's just let's just say this. I'm fortunate enough to be in a position to make decent enough money to be able to get the toys I want. The only thing I really spend money on is food and gadgets. Really? Right. Well, let's let's agree <laughs> that we're going to do a follow up where we can dive in deep into technology and into quantified self, nutrition and fitness, because I think that's really where we want to get to at some point. Absolutely. Um, the impossible question. What would your advice be to someone 20 years younger than you that might have a dream, a goal, a grand ambition, um, but has been told don't give even consider it. That's impossible. I would first and foremost direct them to a Netflix documentary called Losers. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard it or seen it, no, but it's amazing. So, and, and I think we can say to a person about like, you know, Warren Buffett didn't graduate or, you know, the most successful people in the world, you know, dropped out of, out of college or didn't go to college or whatever. But sometimes you need a bit more to really drive that message home. So that the first thing I would show them is, is this documentary. Losers. Like, okay. what, watch this and see what these people went through. And then the next thing I would say is don't let anyone tell you something that you can do, right? It's like, I, you know, I, I would show them an example of, you know, hey, you can't sit down right now. And clearly, if you can sit down, then I would say, listen, for the rest of your life, don't let anyone do what I just did to you. You know, you prove them wrong or don't even prove them wrong. Just say to yourself, I have the power to do whatever I put my mind to. I'm an example of it. Mm -hmm. And then this documentary is an example of many others, whether your goal is to be a genius or to be the wealthiest man in the world or just to be successful or just to be happy. What makes me happy may not make you happy. But I think something that should be known is that you can do whatever you set your mind to and then continue that. Last two questions. We like to give a book, offer a book to listeners with the best comments. What book should we offer them? Awakening Your Inner Genius. It would be another, right? It, it's a book. Yeah. It'd be another thing I would suggest to, to, okay. the, to answer the other question. Yeah. Who should we interview next? My roommate. Yeah. My roommate, Loic Mabanza. Oh, yeah, he's uh, an amazing, amazing person. There's plenty of people I could suggest, but but he's someone that I've seen go from like super duper struggle, crying, depressed to super successful, back and forth and everything in between. 
and his story is amazing. People who who see where he is, you know, dancing with Madonna and being on, you know, Louis Vuitton commercials and just found out he just booked a um, a four page spread in Men's Health magazine. And I mean, this guy, he's a model, he's an actor, he's a dancer. But if you really want to know him, you know, I did I did an interview with him on my podcast, actually. Okay. Yeah, he's he's a wealth of knowledge from experience. OK, it's a good way to end. Yeah. And fine, and just finally, for people that might be watching the video, uh, this strange, or- this strange orange contraption around your wrist and my leg is yeah. what. Yeah, so this is, uh, I'm a big fan of earthing and or grounding. And what we've done here is we're tapping into the earth's energy, which may sound very woo, but um, we are basically resetting our our circadian rhythms. And we're also kind of blocking any of the harmful EMFs or RFs, radio frequencies or dirty electricity. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I, I always try to find a way to to ground myself and these are the new bands by earthing so if you you can go to earthing.com and there's these are called earthing body bands so pretty cool i love them all right well part two of this interview josh is going to dive deep into all the things you're really really knowledgeable about so (laughs) look forward to part two yeah likewise thank you very much thank you thank you okay folks that's it for this week if you like the show please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people discover us Just go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to subscribe and rate. For now, stay curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.